ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, so last week I was down in Hollywood, Florida, attending the Inside ETFs conference. It was an absolute blast. Uh, I had an opportunity to moderate a panel on Bitcoin ETFs with some of the sharpest minds in the business, which you know I enjoyed that. Though I will say we had to follow Double Lines Jeffrey Sherman, which if you haven't seen him speak before, probably one of the better presenters out there. Uh, not exactly the easiest act to follow. We also had uh, Perth Hole, who's behind the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF. She followed us, so we were kind of sandwiched in there. But in any event, I thought we did a nice job discussing the state of Bitcoin ETFs. And then, of course, there were a number of fantastic sessions throughout the week on other ETF topics, a few of which we'll discuss today. But along with that, one of the things I decided to do for this conference was bring down a little mobile podcast recorder. And honestly, I didn't have any idea where I was going with this. I, I just went in with an open mind and decided to see what materialized in front of me. And as it turns out, there was a topic that kept coming up all week long. It, it really jumped out at me. And that's the topic of ETF due diligence. And before you start falling asleep, I understand this might not sound like the most exciting topic in the world. Uh, let me set this up for you at least a little bit, because I think there may be a shift occurring in the ETF world. And I'll set it up like this. If we look back over the past decade plus, there's obviously been a huge move towards the lowest cost, most plain vanilla ETFs, where investors and advisors have been allocating primarily to very inexpensive market cap weighted products. And we all know that's been an excellent decision, right? That's worked really well. 
And I would say there's a pretty good chance it'll continue working well moving forward. As a matter of fact, history tells us the odds are in favor of that. However, we are now seeing a bit of a different market environment where we don't have the Fed juicing the party anymore. Uh, There are no more government stimulus checks. Uh, We have inflation at 40-year highs. Uh, Areas like uh, energy and, and commodities have taken off. And so the question kept coming up at the conference, should investors be considering other types of ETFs besides just plain vanilla? Should they be looking at factor-based ETFs, alternatively weighted ETFs, active ETFs, those sorts of things? And then if you combine that with the fact that we're now approaching 3,000 ETFs in the U.S., in my opinion, the biggest theme coming out of the conference was, well, should investors be rethinking portfolio construction right now? And if so, how do they go about best filtering through the growing number of ETFs? And so I had conversations with a range of people from across the industry on this topic, and you're going to get to hear those this week. And I'll tell you, I think you'll really enjoy this because I felt like I was able to get a a nice cross-section of views, some really unique perspectives. And so I'm going to tee those up for you here in just a bit. Now, to begin this week, I do have the one and only Todd Rosenbluth on the line with me from New York. Of course, Todd is head of research at the newly branded Vetify. And some of you uh, may have seen Todd was actually down in Florida last week as well. And he decided to uh, whip out his phone and do a little live interview of me at the conference, (laughs) which I I greatly enjoyed. Uh, But we're going to discuss a couple of his key takeaways and also look at a piece he just published yesterday on a bond ETF. So let's chat with Todd now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive. Todd, great seeing you last week. It was great to spend time with you. Yes, I I flipped the tables and got to record an interview with you. And I love that we've got the Vetify introduction. Uh, It's exciting to hear that. We're really happy with the way things are going, and I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, and so we'll, we'll get into inside ETFs here in a moment, but I actually wanted to start with this piece you published yesterday on bond ETFs. Uh, this is posted at Vetify. And by the way, I have to tell you, I saw you discussing this on CNBC yesterday with uh, Bob Pisani. Thought you did a really nice job, as you always do. Uh, but in this piece, you wrote about how bond ETFs are seeing inflows recently. Well, bond mutual funds are experiencing rather significant outflows, which is notable because bond mutual funds had been pretty resilient uh, up until recently. So just just to begin, do you want to lay this out? I thought this was an interesting uh, piece you wrote. So thank you. And yes, I saved a lot of the good stuff for you. Uh, yes, I was on CNBC, but wanted to make sure we gave the ETF Prime audience uh, the, the in-depth look at this. So year to date, Year-to-date through late May, and and that's because the ICI data is not fully up-to-date the way that ETF uh, data is, bond mutual funds had 
outflows or redemptions of over $240 billion, whereas the audience probably knows that bond ETFs have gathered over $60 billion of new money. So that's a $300 billion net shift uh, in favor, that is, uh, for bond ETFs. It doesn't mean all the money has gone from mutual funds to ETFs, but what was compelling to me, what made me decide this was worth writing about for Vetify was that the differential was strongest in May. Bond mutual funds had outflows exceeding $90 billion, whereas bond ETFs gathered $34 billion. That that bond ETF flows in May was equal to the inflows for the first four months of the year. And as you noted, advisors have been shifting away from U.S. equity mutual funds and towards ETFs for years. This is a long-term trend. The audience is probably quite familiar with it, but they've long been loyal to bond mutual funds. So this is certainly unique to what we're experiencing in 2022, and, and we think it's likely to continue. Okay, so what do you make of this? Why do you think it's happening? And, and I guess I'll add to that. I think everybody is also well aware it's been a very challenging year in the bond market as a whole. I, I was looking this morning, if you look at an ETF like, uh, say, AGG, the, the iShares uh, U- U.S. aggregate bond ETF, that's down nearly 10% year to date. And I think you can look at a lot of segments of the bond market. Uh, it, it's, again, been very challenging. So, so why are flow? So I guess what I'm getting at, it would make sense to me that you have outflows from mutual funds because of that. But, but why do you think we're seeing inflows into ETFs? So I think you nailed one of the key points uh, is that the struggles, the fact that we're seeing losses that haven't occurred for years uh, are causing advisors and investors to, to rethink their asset allocation as well as their exposure to the fund structure. So if you're down 9%, which is what AGG and BND were for the first five months of the year, your data is fresher than what I published in my piece. And the average bond mutual fund, according to Morningstar, uh, is down the same thing. Well, then you could certainly get the benefits of tax loss harvesting by selling out of your bond mutual fund, shifting to an ETF, now getting uh, that higher yield as a starting point and be able to benefit from from the tax uh, benefits that you'd get from selling something that's that's underwater uh, this year and be able to shift to it. We're also just seeing advisors and institutional investors increasingly getting comfortable with bond ETFs from the liquidity that we saw demonstrated in, in 2020 and in 2021, investors flocked for the sake of safety to these bond ETFs. And largely also, I think we're seeing a generational shift uh, as money is shifted towards a younger cohort, as advisors uh, are shifting their practice to, to meet that those needs. Mutual funds are just not the game that they used to be. They're, they're, they're not the only player in the space and they now have ETF competition. So it's why we think we're likely to see an acceleration of bond ETFs as the year progresses, unless we see bond losses for mutual funds, uh, you know, shrink sharply. I think those are all excellent points. I'll, I'll offer a little additional color on a, a few of those. I do think we are seeing some decent tax loss harvesting out of uh, bond mutual funds and, and going into bond ETFs. I think when you have broad bonds down 9 10%, that's now presenting an opportunity to investors and advisors to get out of some of those mutual funds. And you go, okay, well, why are they doing that? Well, let's talk fees, which you touched on. And, you know, look, yields have come up, 
But if you look historically, we're, we're still on the lower end of the spectrum in terms of where yields are at. And so every you know dollar you're paying in fees comes out of your yield ultimately. And so if you can switch into a vehicle that is lower cost, that's going to mean investors keep more for themselves, which we again, we are still more on the historically low end of the spectrum in terms of interest rates. Fees matter. And then the, the other point which you made, which I completely agree with, and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, if we go back to March of 2020 and we, we saw how the ETF structure held up, it didn't crack. And, and certainly there were plenty of ETFs that traded at a discount, but I'm not going to head down that rabbit hole today. I think much of that was price discovery occurring. But I think that gave a lot of investors, especially institutional investors, a lot of confidence around the ETF structure. And so I think if you add these all up, now that you have some bond mutual funds trading at losses, if you're an investor, you can tax loss harvest that, move into a lower cost ETF. You have confidence in the structure. That all makes perfect sense to me. Um, And and I'll throw one other stat. You may have seen this. I I know uh, our our good friend, uh, Eric Balchunas over at Bloomberg, you're following his Twitter feed. He tweeted uh, this weekend that bond mutual fund outflows uh, this year are three times worse than the worst year since their data starts in 2007. I, I mean, that's saying something. Um, but, but Tal, let me ask you this. I, I know you noted in your piece how uh, most bond mutual funds are actively managed. Well, most bond ETFs are index-based. But you made the point that uh, th- this is changing, right? Th- there are more active bond ETFs coming to market. And I think it's interesting because you and I have long talked about this as a uh, potential area of opportunity for ETFs, potential white space. And it looks like now maybe that's coming to fruition. Like the opportunity has arrived for bond ETFs given the uh, the, the market environment. Do you want to expand on that at all? I do. You're, you're right. I mean, PIMCO was a leader within the active bond ETF space. They, they launched the first uh, series of products, but we've seen many others enter as well and have success. So it, you're right. In my piece, I noted that the Capital Group Core Plus Income ETF, the Fidelity Total Bond ETF, and the JP Morgan Core Plus Bond ETF all have seen net inflows this year. So it's not just investors are looking to tax loss harvest. It's not that they're just looking for cheaper. They are still comfortable with active management. They have just more choices. And we, we could go through, we could spend the entire podcast going through the various asset managers like Federated and T. Rowe Price that have entered in the past year with active fixed income ETFs. You can get the strategies you want in the ETF structure through active management, and that's also likely to be causing the shift uh, towards ETFs. I know bonds aren't necessarily the most exciting topic for some people, but um, I'll just say I think this is a real story to watch moving forward because, as we noted, bond mutual funds have been pretty resilient historically. And if we see the floodgates start to open there in terms of outflows, I mean, that's just another enormous tailwind, but behind ETF. So I think something I'm sure we'll continue to talk about uh, here, Todd. Um, Okay, let's talk a little bit about the Inside ETFs conference last week. And I I would say besides due diligence, which I'll ask you about that in a moment, one of the biggest topics without question was ESG. And you had another nice write-up. I believe you posted this last Thursday or Friday. Uh, you wrote about this panel uh, Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas hosted. 
Um, I'd love to have you briefly recap that. You, you know, ESG is a topic that uh, I spent a lot of time on. And it, it, as you recap this, I'll jump in with some thoughts. But obviously, ESG is a topic that's not going away. And I feel like this year, it's actually generating even more debate than usual. And that was reflected at the conference. So what, what was your take on all this? Yeah, so let me just set the stage a little bit. I went to Inside ETFs as a speaker. We'll, well, I think we'll come back to a session that I was a part of. I also wanted to be there to support my colleague, Roxana Islam, uh, who spoke on a different uh, Bitcoin uh, and crypto panel than the one that you touched on earlier. And I wrote up our respective uh, sessions f- for Vetify slash ETF Trends website. But I attended the ESG or the Truth About ESG panel that Eric Eric Balchunas moderated as a because I thought it'd be interesting and I just felt compelled to recap and write about it because it was just different than what we'd seen. So you're you're right. ESG has been topical this year. It's topical in part because the S&P Dow Jones Indices Committee removed Tesla from one of its indexes that it, that it tracks tied to the S&P 500. We've got the SEC uh, looking more closely at ESG disclosure. And those things were topical, but Eric brought it. Uh, and I know he's been on the on the pod beforehand, so the audience probably is familiar with, with his energy and, and passion for a range of ETF topics. But he covered the gamut. Uh, he referred at one point to the hypocrisy that the panelists, including himself, flew on a plane using oil to speak at a conference to advocate for ESG. He questioned why Tesla was being was removed. He questioned he, he used the sham or repeated the sham terms that Elon Musk put out there. So he came at the panelists uh, in an effort to try to get education for the audience. And I think that certainly came through. But the panelists from S&P Dow Jones Indices and American Century were two of uh, the panelists that that I'm recalling as part of the session. Somebody else from a different index company, apologies for, for misremembering at the moment, made some key points as well. Uh, so to me, what, what was relevant is, one, you need to do your homework. Uh, we'll get to that again from a due diligence perspective, but understand what is and is not inside the portfolio. And in some cases, these are geared, these index strategies or even the active funds are trying to find the best companies within a sector or where there is a shift where these companies are pivoting towards more of a ESG-friendly approach. And then they lastly reminded the audience that E, the energy part of the environmental or the environmental part of uh, social and governance is not the only thing that's a focus. So Tesla is clearly an environmentally oriented company, but it's it scores relatively low according to S and P Dow Jones indices for the social part of the business. So I think there's a lot of confusion about what is and is not ESG. This was an interesting session. I don't know that we got all the way there, but I I think it was great. Eric asked tough questions. The panelists were prepared to answer them, and, and I think the audience, including myself, learned from it, too. I'm sure I'll go into much more detail on a future podcast on the, these SEC proposed rules uh, around, uh, you know, stricter ESG labeling and, and disclosure and those sorts of things. I guess the question I have for you, and then we can move on. I mean, Todd, you're, you're, you're a, uh, an ETF analyst, very detailed ETS, uh, ETF analyst, and I feel like you're always extremely objective 
when evaluating ETFs, which I think you have to be. And, and this this will fit into the, the due diligence topic. But, you know, as I look at ESG, it is very subjective. And you have the SEC, you have the SEC trying to put rules around ESG, something that's very subjective. I'm just curious. I mean, do you have any trouble sort of personally reconciling those two things that you're an objective ESG or uh, ETF analyst, but, uh, you know, ESG can be very subjective. Does that make sense? I'm just curious how how you feel about that. I I do. I'm not sure that, so the SEC is trying to make sure that there's, for lack of a better phrase, truth in advertising. If you are saying you're an ESG uh, portfolio, or you're offering an ESG portfolio that people are getting what they think they're expecting, and that ESG is the top priority for inclusion. Um, but there's differences between what makes an ESG a company qualify from an ESG perspective. So I don't know that we're gonna they're solving the problem any more than we've got a range of different ETFs that have value in the name uh, or dividend in the name or momentum in the name. And they're constructed differently because of the rules of, of the product. So there's more than one input that goes in uh, for some of these strategies, in particular the active one. I think, I think they're better suited to solve the actively managed ESG approach because you could include ESG and valuation. And so now are you really an ESG portfolio or are you kicking out companies because they Tesla at one point was trading at a much higher multiple than they are today. So I, I think... It still is on the advisor and the end client to do their homework. I think we need more education. I know you are certainly doing that with your efforts, both on this on this podcast and outside of this podcast. But it's not simple. And, and the SEC saying something is uh, not perfect is accurate, but I don't know that they're going to solve that, which is, again, why I get to talk about this, because it's not simple. It's not. I mean, I, there's just such a wide variety of approaches in the ESG space. I mean, you have inclusionary, exclusionary. You have uh, EETFs that are want minimal tracking or, uh, uh, you know, against a benchmark. There are just so many ways. You have more thematic ESG ETFs. So, again, this is one of those stories I think we'll be talking about all year long as well. And a, a fascinating one to me just to see how the SEC tries to put this in a box. But, um, OK, on the topic of, of doing your homework, I know one of your favorite topics What well, Let's close here with ETF due diligence. And as you know, I did visit with a number of our friends from across the industry at the conference. I'm going to play all that sound here in just a moment. But I have to tell you, Todd, I mean, your panel, which was the very first panel of the conference, that's actually what set my direction in terms of what I was going to record. Because I had no idea coming down, you know, sort of the the, the path I was going to take, what topic I was going to cover. But as I sat in on that panel, you know, this was, I think, intended to be an intro to ETFs. But the room that we were in uh, was already pretty well versed. You did a good job of kind of reading the room and, and get, you know, doing a quick straw poll. And you saw that most people were pretty well versed. And so you kind of moved things along and you pretty quickly got into this topic of due diligence. Um, now, I, I don't want you to steal all of my thunder here, <laughs> if you can help yourself. But do you maybe just want to offer a few thoughts on your panel and, and this particular topic? I think that'll help set me up nicely here. Sure. So you're right. I, I had the honor of moderating the kickoff panel for Inside ETFs called, again, no euphemisms here or, or, or subjectivity, Ultimate Guide to the Fundamentals of ETFs. They set the bar high with the title. Uh, but I, I was joined by Jillian Delsignor, Mo Sparks, and Adam Schaffner. And the goal, as, as you noted, was to give financial advisors 
sufficient insights into the basics of ETFs to hopefully set them up for the rest of the conference. And you're right, I, I quickly got a sense that in the room was a mixture of folks within the industry that we didn't need to talk about the basics of creation and redemption, and that ETFs tend to be cheaper and that they tend to trade on an exchange and, and, and intraday. Um, and we also had advisors that, that were using ETFs as the predominant part of their overall practice. So we jumped ahead and, and I was able also to, to tap into some of the data that we have that I know you love uh, when we do our webcasts. We happened to have a session a couple of days beforehand and we asked what characteristics do you place the greatest emphasis on when selecting an investment strategy for your client's portfolio? And I love this question in general, and I actually love that we're getting the answers that we're getting. Um, let me just tell you what the four choices are. The four choices were a good fit with existing portfolio mix, performance, methodology, I'm sorry, five, methodology, issue of reputation, and then cost. And the old days, the pre-doing-your-homework efforts, cost and issue a reputation uh, tended to rise to the top. So Vanguard and iShares with their very cheap and products, uh, index-based orientation. But what was interesting is 39% of the audience chose a good fit with existing portfolio mix. Another 21% chose methodology. Uh, I'm skipping the performance one, which is 25%. But a total of 60% were choosing things that were required doing some actual homework, looking inside the portfolio, making sure it fit in with the overall portfolio. And that was compelling to me. Uh, and that's compelling for a variety of reasons I'll perhaps get to. I'll give you a chance to respond to that. But this was not just the cheapest product winning out. No, look, and, and this actually sets, sets up perfectly for the conversations that I'm going to play here in a moment. You know, it's my belief, Todd, the reason you're seeing that, that, that changing viewpoint is reflected in your poll is because we're having a changing or shifting market environment. And we've had a proliferation of, of innovative products come to market. I think the combination of those two things is putting more emphasis on due diligence and it's changing what advisors are, are focusing on. I, I really think it's that simple. So I, I agree, Nate. I, I don't, again, I don't want to steal your thunder, but I want to use, if I can, one example uh, for why. Do, so I love dividend ETFs in general, but I love using dividend ETFs as an example on the need to look under the hood. And so let me give you two products you know, you, the audience might be familiar with. But, but Alps has a sector dividend dogs ETF. The ticker is SDOG. You have a dog at home. I have a dog at home. That, that ticker jumps out to me. This is an ETF that owns the five highest dividend yielding stocks in each of the sectors of the S&P 500 and does an equally weighted approach. So it's diversified at the stock level, diversified at the sector level. So it, its highest weighting in the sectors is energy at 11%, at financials at 8%, very diversified, and that's due to the market movements. You think of something like Vanguard High Dividend Yield ETF, VYM, it has underexposure to technology. It has an overweighting towards some of those more defensive sectors. It's constructed differently. And what what a difference the portfolio construct makes. This year, uh, S-Dog, uh, again, that's the Alps Dividend Dog ETF, is up 4.75%. And VYM, the Vanguard ETF, is down 50 basis points. 
So 500 basis points of performance differential, even though these two are high dividend yielding ETFs. They're different. Now, they won't always perform with S-Dog outperforming. And in fact, that hasn't happened uh, forever over time. But these are constructed differently. They require homework. And, and I, I'm confident, I actually hope I can stay on the line to hear uh, your audience uh, or, or the, the guests you got to talk with, hopefully piggyback on the themes we talked about. No, it's a great example. And, and while you were going through that, I just pulled up a, a tweet I sent out at the end of last week. It, your example sort of reminded me of, of this, where I sent out a chart of the performance of the S&P 500 factor indices year to date. And believe it or not, there's actually a 30% performance differential between the top performing strategy and the worst. So again, these are all S&P 500 stocks, right, sliced up by, by factor exposure. And if you look at the S&P 500 high dividend index, that's returned nearly 8%. This was uh, through the end of May, while pure growth has lost 22%. And then, of course, you have everything in between. So there are some real differences, even between you know high dividend and, and dividend aristocrats, those sorts of things. But yeah, Todd, that's a perfect spot to, to leave it there. Um, again, nice seeing you last week. And, and certainly, thank you for joining me today. Great stuff, as always. Thanks a lot, Nate. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs, a new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results, a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs, and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. All right. So as I mentioned at the top, I decided to bring down my uh, little podcast recorder to Inside ETFs last week. And honestly, I had no idea what direction I was going to head with this. I wasn't even sure if I was actually going to record any audio. But I'll tell you, from that very first session I sat in to all the way throughout the week, this topic of ETF due diligence just kept coming up. Making sure you understand what's inside an ETF and how to best evaluate ETFs. But, but I'll tell you, it was even much broader than that because there was this overarching theme of uh, maybe we are now in a new market regime where the financial markets and the returns we experienced over the past 10 years, they may not look like that over the next 10 years. And so because of that, there was a lot of discussion around whether simply allocating to the lowest cost, most plain vanilla ETFs, whether that's the best approach moving forward. And then if you add to that, we do now have nearly 3,000 ETFs out there. There's some very innovative products, new products coming to market every day. All of this makes ETF due diligence that much more important. And so I had conversations with a variety of people from across the industry. And I'll ask that you uh, bear with me on the audio. You're going to hear everything from uh, birds chirping in the background, glasses clanging, music. I think I pretty much captured it all on the recorder. But if you can listen to what is actually said here, I truly think you'll walk away with some valuable insight. So first up, I have Jillian Del Senor, 
who, as Todd just noted, she was on that very first panel of the conference when this topic of ETF due diligence initially came up. She's head of advisor sales and ETFs at Flex Networks, a longtime ETF industry veteran. And I start here by referencing something she said on that panel regarding investors uh, fixating on fees when evaluating ETFs and how ETFs uh, have sort of been typecast as low cost, which may not necessarily always be good all the time. First, you made a point that investors have become sort of pre-programmed to equate ETFs to cheap data. And you, you elaborated by saying it's easy for investors to get trapped into that mindset. And as I thought about that, I was like, well, you're right, because how do you reprogram investors to focus away from cheap data, which you were involved in the ETF space very early days. A lot of the first ETFs, they were built around very low cost, core exposure in a portfolio. That's where ETFs really got their start, but clearly the industry's evolved a lot from that. So I'd love to have you just talk a little bit about that and, and maybe some of the challenges that <laughs> that uh, brings up. Absolutely. It's such an interesting question because I think the earliest ETFs were, I don't want to say the word cheap, they were beta exposures, right? And I think if you think about how we've evolved and how accessible some of this has become, I would argue that S&P 500 market cap weighted beta should cost two basis points or zero in, in some cases that you can now get it, right? So. There is a cost for that that I would argue should be down there in the single digits, given the accessibility of a product like that. But we've evolved so meaningfully as an ETF industry, and most of what is being brought to market today, if not all of what's being brought to market today, is not that. It is active. It is even something like fixed income. Just some of the even if it's not active, just some of the asset classes that are coming to market are just more expensive to access, and that is reflected in their cost. So what I like to think about it is, you know, ETFs are, we always say low cost, right? Relative to what? So I think by just saying they're low cost, everyone gets programmed to think, well, low cost, right? Yeah, we set that marker, right? It's, it's three, four basis points, right? No, it's low cost relative to something else. And so if I think back to when I used to sell alternatives ETFs, there's 75, 80 basis points. Yeah, more expensive relative to the S&P 500, but way less expensive than 2 and 20 if you're buying a traditional hedge fund. Even in some other fixed income asset classes or thematics, ETFs are an access vehicle. And they're giving you exposure to, to, to types of exposures you would have never been able to access otherwise. And I think we need to do a better job of educating the buying community, whether that's retail, whether that's advisors, of this idea that ETFs are low cost, but relative to what, right? And the, what, what is the alternative? Let me ask you this. How does that play into the advisor due diligence yeah. process? And the way that I'll lay this out is, look, you visit with a lot of advisors, and clearly a lot goes into selecting ETFs for a portfolio, but to what we were just discussing, fees have been front and center for a long time. And I do wonder how many really wonderful products just get bypassed in that due diligence product process because they are more expensive, relatively speaking. Yes. Um, so I, I guess twofold, I mean, talk a little bit about that expense ratio as part of the due diligence process. But then I'd also just be curious, as you talk to advisors and hear how they go about evaluating ETFs, what are some of the common 
mistakes that you see being made, or, or even if mistake's too strong of a word, maybe just some of the misconceptions out there in evaluating ETFs? I think one of the, the I think there's a couple things. One is, and I'll maybe back into your second question, but one of them is focusing too much on the cost, right? The, the expense ratio for an ETF is one component of total cost of ownership, right? This is not a mutual fund. Um, you have to trade it. That T stands for traded, and you need to consider trading costs. Now, I understand some of the more, uh, the, the larger, seemingly more liquid ETFs in a particular exposure that you're looking at may have lower trading costs because of the fact that they are trading more frequently and you can trade in the secondary market versus having to, to trade otherwise. But really fixating on the expense ratio, I think, um, can, can be a challenge for an advisor as you're trying to really scour the universe for the right product for your client. Costs matter. Please don't you know, get what I'm saying incorrectly. Like, costs matter. Um, and of course, in two seemingly identical products, I think most people are going to go for the one that is less expensive. But make sure you are working with the capital markets desk of an issuer to understand what does it cost to trade that product because you need to be looking at them on equal footing. So I think focusing intently on an expense ratio is definitely one of the, the challenges that we see. I think the other thing is looking at two products or three or four or five that have a sim similar name and thinking they're the same and not doing, you know, the, uh, I know you interviewed Todd a lot. You I already know where you're heading with this. <laughs> yeah, like you need to understand what's inside. That's Todd's big thing on due diligence and I could not agree more. We talked about it on the panel. What is inside the ETF? What is the methodology if it's an index? What is the process if it's active? How are these things being selected? Because you're, I would imagine you're picking that security, or excuse me, that ETF to be in your client's portfolio for a specific reason. And so you don't want to put something in the portfolio and have a very different outcome than you expected because you just bought the book by its cover. And so I think understanding what's inside the ETF um, and not putting enough time and energy and effort into that um, and just screening by that expense ratio, which is largely how some things like that happen, can be some downfalls that we see in due diligence. So that was Jillian Del Senor, head of advisor sales and ETFs at Flex Networks. And I thought she did a, a nice job of conveying that, look, costs do matter, but you might be missing out on some opportunities in the ETF world if that's the beginning and ending point of your due diligence efforts. And on that note, the next conversation I have for you is with another longtime industry veteran, uh, Phil Bach. And it's funny, so uh, Phil and I were just sitting down talking shop, but then as I thought about it, Phil is actually the perfect person to discuss this topic because he's so passionate about looking beyond ETF fees. And he's really a champion of smaller ETF issuers and product innovation. And so I have a, a few clips here. Let me start with him discussing how the market environment over the past decade has maybe caused some complacency in how advisors are approaching portfolios. For years, we've had this outperformance in you know broad, vanilla, market cap weighted funds. And that's led to, uh, I think it's led to a couple things. One is it's led to a little bit of complacency on the part of some allocators where, you know, the market's been up for a long time and, and these funds have performed quite well. And everyone just feels like, well, that's kind of good enough. And this like hunger and this thirst for alpha to try to do something a little better has kind of dissipated. Another, another part of that is people who have, you know, gone into smart beta funds or different funds to try to get some of that alpha hasn't always worked out as, you know, in the last few years, the large cap in the tech sector just disconnected from the rest of the market. 
market, the rich got richer in terms of stocks, and uh, a lot of the people who made those quote-unquote smarter bets were not rewarded for it. But now we're kind of on the other side of that hill, and you know what we're seeing is a lot of those strategies are starting to work again. A lot of value strategies are starting to work again, and um, you know I hope we get back to a point where investors do a little bit more, a little bit more searching, a little bit more um, effort to try to find to fight for alpha the same way they fight to keep their costs down and their fees down on the funds. They should also on the other side of the ledger be fighting for as much, there's no guarantee, but as much projected or potential alpha on a risk-adjusted basis, but as much as they can for their clients. So I like what he said there at the end, that maybe advisors should fight for alpha the same way they fight to keep their fees down. I thought that was an interesting way to look at things. Now, all that said, Phil would be the first to tell you costs do matter uh, again. And he continues here by stating that, but he also notes some other factors like trading costs. So costs are critically important, and of course that's an absolute, you know, with, with the other side. Like I, you know, I'm arguing that people should, you know, consider paying in some cases a higher cost for potential outperformance. The cost side, though, is a sure thing, and the outperformance is not. So I can understand the reluctance to do so, especially in an environment where, you know, a lot of promises have not been kept by the funds and a lot of expected return. But when you think about costs, you have to think about not just the fund expense ratios, but also the transaction side. And I know that transaction fees are coming down, but there's also the trading costs in the form of spreads, in the form of tracking error, in the form of bad fills. And, you know, this is this is a real cost, right? The total spreads paid on every ETF over last year uh, came out to about two-thirds of the amount of the total expense ratio paid. So, of course, that you know, the variable there is how often, how frequently you're trading. If you're in and out, you're going to be paying those spreads more than you're paying the expense ratios. But if you're, you know, a buy-and-hold investor and you buy once and sell it after a few years, you know, the expense ratio is still more important. But it is... Um, it is something that's often ignored. And when it comes to analyzing that and figuring out, well, how do I keep my trading costs low? A lot of people just look at ETFs the way they look at stocks and say, oh, what's the volume? What are the assets? Uh, and call it a day. When in fact, the liquidity of an ETF is very different. Uh, there are some low volume ETFs that are managed quite well where you have very tight spreads. There are some high, you know, high asset funds where the spreads are very wide. And there are some cases where the bid and the ask is, uh, is being moved away from the fair value. And real time and people I thought it was interesting that both Phil and uh, Jillian circled around trading costs is something to pay attention to in the ETF due diligence process and, and stay tuned by the way Phil's working on something that uh, could definitely raise the bar on this uh, but let me close my conversation with Phil with this very succinct point regarding ETF due diligence which I think anyone who knows Phil will appreciate there's so much innovation happening right here in this room, in this industry, so many great ideas, different asset classes becoming accessible. And if you're going to close the door to the majority of them because of arbitrary AUM or volume numbers, you're only denying yourself more opportunities to, you know, to access better investments. And again, Phil has always been a huge advocate of smaller ETF issuers and, and publicly voicing that you can't just look at AUM, that if you're screening out products based on small AUM, you might be missing out on some wonderful opportunities. Now, on that note, I wanted to visit with someone who is currently in that boat, someone who is a smaller ETF issuer, an upstart issuer, and I wanted to hear how they view competing against larger ETF issuers. So I sat down with Ryan Kruger, who is founder and CEO of Freedom Day Solutions, which I also uh, have to mention, you are not going to find a nicer person in the ETF space than, than Ryan. But they launched a dividend growth ETF last year. And I asked him about uh, ETF due diligence and how they can attempt to stand out. 
I'm, I'm really curious from your perspective as someone who has launched an ETF, your ETF has now been on the market for about a year, you have a dividend-focused ETFs. As you know, that's a pretty crowded space. There are a lot of dividend ETFs on the market. I would love to hear from you about the importance of due diligence on ETFs, and in particular in the dividend ETF category. Where I'm heavily biased with this question because I've always been a pop the hood and figure out what's underneath guy as an active manager. The fact that I'm seeing advisors on behalf of the clients they serve needing and wanting to start popping more hoods and it's not as easy as it looks to just buy and hold the cheapest, most all-encompassing indexes it encourages me. That, that's always where I've been, but I do see a regime change. And, and markets doing that for people, they cause a lot of those questions in meetings. So uh, maybe they don't deserve all the credit for the forced due diligence, but the market changes and people will change. And this has the very real possibility of being a long lasting regime change. So when an advisor is popping the hood to answer your question on a couple of different dividend funds, they're wildly different answers. There may be a 3% yield here next to a 3% yield here. In the past, they didn't look much further than the cost question. Now they're saying, wait a minute, this fund's dividend yield is taking up three quarters of free cash flow of the underlying companies, whereas this one, less than half is being paid out. So those 3% yields are very different. And specifically, our interest and our strategy is focusing on the dividend growth and the trajectory of those 3% starting yields or 2% starting yields. In either case, that could end up being a 7 or 8% yield on cost over the next 5 to 10 years based completely on what's under the hood in very, very different companies. Um, and I'm, as an active manager, I think that will increasingly be important. And the biggest advantage of all to me under that hood is you can change your mind and there can be sell disciplines because companies are changing during this regime change also. You're having old-fashioned growth companies turn into free cash flow generators and all of a sudden be dividend growth stories that never are showing up on some of those factor screens previously. And so once again, we hear that perhaps the market environment will be a catalyst for changing how investors approach due diligence. And that could bode well for smaller ETF issuers and perhaps active managers in particular and so we continue here by talking more specifically about active management and how Ryan will attempt to compete with some of the larger dividend growth ETFs. Do you think active is going to play a more prominent role here moving forward because of this shift we have had in the market? I think unquestionably yes. And I think some of your data, and there's no better show to keep in touch with this than yours, but the percentage of actively managed ETFs is something like 5%. Is that right? Something about, yeah. It's, although it's taken in an outsized portion of flows. Flows or triple or quadruple that. I, I think that homework is going to matter again. Um, and I think wildly different valuations on some of these companies is going to matter again. So I, I'm, again, I'm heavily biased. I know no other way than to say no different than I don't think the NFL is a great sport or it's going out of business, I see different teams. And I think their trajectories and the value of those franchises will change over time. Um, so I, I think companies are very, very different. And so we know no other way. And I think concentration will matter. We, we're a big believer in that. If you look at competitive and peers, which I do on a daily basis because I'm a competitive type person, there's a lot of big, giant dividend funds that basically own them all. And some of them are not even growing top line. The business is not even growing. So you have to ask yourself, where is that dividend going to be supported? So I have a hard time not seeing big differences. Um, 
going back to popping the hood on an ETF, do you have any words of wisdom for advisors in terms of how they go about that process? So you are an upstart ETF issuer. I'm assuming that you're more than happy to field a phone call, inbound inquiries if advisors have questions on the ETF and the, and the strategy that you run. But even just pulling back from that, any suggestions on how advisors can best approach due diligence? Yes, I, I think you, you should use access if you've got it, and we're happy to offer it. We have an open playbook, so we love writing and sharing some color commentary on the website. I think you've got to be able to get your hands somehow on the fundamental data and the math, though. Um, for us, we line them up. We have nothing to hide. We'll show every single competitive peer, um, and you either need to do that yourself or find somebody that can do that. And I just call them, you know, flip over the back of that baseball card and line up the stats. They, they don't lie. They're not going to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow or next quarter, but over time, that selection process um, is important. And I, if you have the ability to ask them, I've always said the most important question is, how much of your own capital is involved? I'm still astonished to this day, the old Morningstar data that continues to ring true, and I'm astonished how few managers of any kind, um, that's not their own largest position. And you can say that's a conflict of interest. Sign me up if I'm an investor yeah. for Are that kind of conflict. you your own cooking, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Did you collect baseball cards? I was up? a baseball card nerd. <laughs> I collected baseball cards too, though. I'll tell you, I spent much more time looking at the uh, the Beckett's pricing guide than the uh, the back of the uh, cards. But in any event, you can hear Ryan making the case for active management. And I'll tell you, as I continue digging into this topic of ETF due diligence, that certainly became a recurring theme. That perhaps because of this changing market environment, advisors do need to look beyond indexing. And so the next conversation I have for you is with Dodd Kitsley, National Director at Davis Advisors, another longtime industry veteran. And of course, Davis offers a lineup of transparent, actively managed ETFs. And we get further into this topic of active management. In a market such as the one we've been in, where we have seen such a divergence between price and value, I mean, we've seen you know growth outperform value by 12 percentage points per year over the last four years, per year. Uh, you're looking at the S&P 500 at the beginning of the year that had over 70 companies trading over 10 times sales, price to sales. It, you know, it was ridiculous. To put that in perspective, in the dot-com bubble, there was only 40 companies in the S&P 500 trading at over 10 times you know, sales. So uh, there is some frothiness in this market, but at the same time, I don't think it's as simple as saying, all right, well, value is better than growth. Let's just go into value because within value, there are uh, some, some areas of the market that are still very overpriced, right? Because it's investor emotion of going to something where they perceive as being safe. Utilities, uh, you know, telecom, a lot of segments that used to be safe, used to be stable, uh, are bid up so high that their price, utility is one of the most expensive sectors in the market. That blows my mind. At the same time, you look at financials. It's one of the cheapest sectors in the market. And we think that financials has been under a cloud because of the financial crisis and the perception that investors still have recovering from that. And it's very different this time around. Financials were obviously part of the problem with the financial crisis, right? There was too much risk being taken. There wasn't enough cash on the balance sheets. That is no longer the case. Financials are durable. They have historically high levels of cash on their balance sheets. So they're very, very stable. Their credit 
discipline has been incredibly high. And they're really understating earnings because they've had to pro provide, you know, loan losses, uh, you know, provisions for loan losses that have never really come to fruition as the economies continue to hum along. So, just a couple examples, but we think, you know, what you don't own is as important as what you do. And finding a manager that is selective in what they're doing as opposed to just buying the entire market really can add value. If you've got an active manager that owns most of the S&P 500 and looks pretty similar, why would you pay more? Now, if we assume advisors do want to pursue active strategies, well, then the next question in my mind is obviously, how should the due diligence process look for active ETFs versus index ETFs? Should it be different? And I asked Dodd just this question. With index-based products, you're really looking at the underlying index methodology, what's included, how's it weighted, what is the opportunity set, and what's the rebalance. So it's fairly straightforward, uh, and it's really easy to compare apples to apples there. When you move to actively managed products, we're getting back to more of the traditional manager due diligence. And it's a challenge for folks because really there is a lot of bad active out there. And one of the great things, I think, by products that isn't talked about a lot with the growth of ETFs is that it's really raised the bar, right? Because you can get a low-cost beta exposure, and to your point, that's really worked over the last decade in a momentum-based, growth-based market. But as you point out, we're, we're, we're kind of exiting that right now. We got that feeling, and we know that growth and value happens in cycles that can often take a long time. So when looking at active management, I mean, you got a couple options. One, you can outsource it to a third party or your broker dealer's manager research department. Uh, so for a lot of the manager research departments, they already follow mutual funds managed by the same managers. Uh, it may be, a, you know, the ETF may be an analog in the case of Davis, that's the case. Like our DUSA is, really modeled on New York Venture. Uh, it's just more concentrated, but the economic exposure is quite quite similar. Uh, now, if you're going to do it yourself, uh, and a lot of folks do want to do it themselves, uh, I think there's a few key characteristics to look at. Uh, the first is, what is the manager's experience and track record, right? Uh, have they done it before? Have they been able to show over long periods of time an ability to add alpha? Uh, we caution folks, don't look at the shorter term, uh, because often, uh, you know, managers that are hot become not so hot. And those that have had periods of underperformance are really poised to, to perform. Because we're in a market environment right now where we see a huge divergence between price and value. When I say value, the underlying value of businesses, right? So you want a manager who has a good track record and strong experience. Second thing is reasonable fees, right? And you've got to set the right expectation here. If you're comparing active with a passive product, it's not a fair comparison. It's apples and oranges. But most actively managed ETFs have expense ratios that are far lower than what you can find in a mutual fund type of structure. The most important, and I think it's really overlooked, and this is where bad active comes in a lot, is look for products, especially on the transparent side, when you can, that are highly differentiated. Uh, the technical term is high active share. Do they look different than the index, right? 
because there is a lot of active products that pretty much are just taking minor bets and are truing up their weightings and sectors and what have you. So we're looking for something that doesn't have a lot of overlap with the index. It's actually quite different. And in this market, that's going to be what is really important because what you don't own is going to be just as important as what you do own. So the last thing I would say is look at managers that have skin in the game, that are aligned with shareholders. And Morningstar did this study a while back where nearly 50% of all actively managed mutual funds had zero dollars invested alongside investors. Uh, and nearly 90% had less than a million dollars. Now, certainly that's a big part of the story of Davis, and there are some active managers that are prohibited from owning their own shares for legal purposes. I get that, but you really do want alignment, whether it's ownership or it's compensation, based on a longer-term performance of doing the right thing for investors. So that was Dodd Kitsley, who, like Ryan Kruger, mentioned the importance of active managers eating their own cooking, which I think is always a good metric to at least uh, take a peek at. But again, actively managed ETFs definitely seem to be gaining some traction, and we are now seeing that reflected in flows. All right, continuing along with the theme of ETF due diligence, given that advisors may be looking at different ways to get exposure, whether active management or factor-based, whatever, just something other than plain vanilla market cap weighting, I sat down with Jack Vogel, co-chief investment officer at Alpha Architect, who offer some high-octane factor exposure through their concentrated value momentum ETFs. And I like this because Jack explained how they're actually helping advisors understand what's in their portfolios and in the ETFs they might own. They're, they're helping with that due diligence process. And I like this because it shows how an ETF issuer is looking for other ways to add value as the markets are changing and more ETFs are being launched. Take a listen. Obviously, you know, this year um, within Factorland, people have become, let's say, more interested in value, given that value has done well, uh, you know, this uh, year to date, as well as even last year, um, as we've seen some of the growth names come down. Um, and so what have I been working on with advisors is specifically when you go to do something that's non-market cap weighted, and you want to do factors, there's different ways in which these ETFs are created, like the portfolio construction. And the details do matter. Um, and so, you know, for example, uh, like in a momentum fund, right, there's different rebalance frequencies that one can use, right? So some momentum funds are going to do it quarterly, some are going to do it semi-annually. And, and this is something that uh, we can take one-on-one -on -one, uh, conversations with advisors and dig into the details and see, you know, what are the pros and cons of each approaches. Um, and then specifically going back to value investing, right on value investing, there's different ways to identify value, right? So some funds are going to use book to market, which would be like your traditional DFA funds. Um, some are going to use book to market or value and profitability. Um, we prefer using like enterprise multiples. Um, and so interestingly enough, Sometimes you can actually combine a decent number of value ETFs because if they're built differently and you, they're going to be working well at different times. So that's something I've been working on with advisors this year uh, is digging into the weeds on how these factor ETFs are built. 
I can tell you as an advisor myself, it is a real challenge out there that there's been this huge proliferation of products on the market, especially factor-based, and there's really not great tools available to uh, look under the hood and, and really evaluate those differences. Talk more just about some of the tools, the analytics that you use on the back end to help evaluate some of the differences between these ETFs. Yeah, so um, the tool that we built, it's a, it's a tool that we allow um, you know, uh, some of our clients to use. It's called a Portfolio Architect tool. What it allows us to do is actually see, it's kind of like an x-ray tool, where we can see what are the positions in the fund. And uh, the way we view factor investing is we view the characteristics of the portfolio, our destiny, right? And we don't view that because Wes and I think that's a good idea. We, we do that because there's actually like academic research highlighting that the characteristics of the portfolio historically are what drive returns, right? There's, a, there's an academic debate over factors or characteristics, and honestly, the true answer is there is no right, an, right or wrong answer. So we look at the characteristics of the fund. If you want to own a momentum ETF, it should have super high momentum. You want to own a value ETF, it should have very cheap stocks in there. Um, and so our tool allows uh, us to, uh, to compare funds and then to you know, make assessments about uh, which ones might be best to, be, to use in a portfolio. So that was Alpha Architects. Jack Vogel uh, definitely recommend checking out their portfolio architect tool. And I'll tell you, just walking around the uh, exhibit hall at the conference, I came across numerous providers, not just ETF issuers, but different software providers and tools designed to help with ETF due diligence. And one of those providers I was pretty intrigued by was Magnify by Tiffin. So I visited with Matt Barley, who's director of advisor sales there. And I just thought they were the perfect example of what's happening here with this proliferation of due diligence tools, given the growth of ETFs. And their particular tool uses natural language search and artificial intelligence to help with ETF due diligence. Take a listen. One of the challenges we continue to hear in the marketplace is not only the proliferation of products, but also how nuanced the marketplace has become, right? All at a time when uh, regulatory oversight on the advisors that are working with clients to make these decisions is more of a burden than ever. So magnifies an investment platform that utilizes natural language search and artificial intelligence to really change the way that advisors can actually navigate the marketplace, uncover products, but then ultimately once uncovered across whatever metrics or variables are relevant to them at a time, allow them for a way to put in a structured process for analyzing those products from a due diligence angle. The ability not only to bring in a set of ETFs that they might be comparing against each other to make a decision on what they're going to deploy into their clients' portfolios or their models, but also the ability to set custom criteria sets based on any statistical measure that reports to Morningstar to be able to create a definable, repeatable due diligence process on how they're actually analyzing and comparing products. And then ultimately, as we all know, it's most important to document these processes. So one of the big things Magnify also provides is the ability to produce documentation directly out of our platform that highlights the process that took place for how um, decisions and analysis were made in a specific scenario in, uh, for that advisor. So I'd love to have you maybe just give a basic example, and I'll tee one up for you. So let's take sure. emerging markets right now. Yep. You know, one, one of the themes that's out there is, does an investor want to own 
countries, say like China yep. or Russia. Right. Talk, talk about how an advisor might approach a search like that to begin conducting due diligence using the Magnify platform. Sure. Well, CNBC deemed us the Google for investing, so I guess I'll run with that. Um, but think of Magnify like you use Google for every other part of your life, right? Magnify at our core, we are a search engine, right? The difference with Magnify is that all of the results within the platform are investment products, mutual funds, ETFs, whatever products that you define. So for example, to your point, if an advisor, and this is a pretty common one, is looking for emerging markets funds, no China, they can type in EM no China or emerging markets with no exposure to China. There's natural language search, they don't have to use investment jargon, just literally search for whatever they happen to be looking for. Magnify will produce results ranked in order of how they align with that specific criteria set. So immediately within Magnify, you'll see a list of results that have high exposure to the emerging market sector, that don't hold any companies that are within China or Russia, whatever the example might be. And of course, you can go the other way. I can look for a lot of exposure to a region, sector, whatever it might be. And then from there, you can take those products into that further analysis process. So the first part of Magnify is defining the marketplace based on the criteria that you're asking or looking to uncover, and then using that kind of data set to be able to analyze and compare in a specific custom way to that advisor's process and belief system. ...of investing, and I'll tell you, I recorded that at the uh, Magnify booth after I demoed their platform. I would absolutely describe it as the Google of investing. It's a neat platform where you can type in various keywords and searches, and it'll return a menu of investment options. And then you can actually drill into those investment options in, in pretty great detail. Again, just a good example of providers looking to help solve the ETF due diligence challenge. At Vanguard, clients are more than investors, they're owners. That means we always seek to focus on client objectives, aligning our goals with investor goals, and staying disciplined. Vanguard fixed income investors own low-cost products that reflect these priorities, which can enhance outcomes. That's the value of ownership. Visit Vanguard.com to obtain a fund prospectus or, if available, a summary prospectus which contains investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and other information. Read and consider carefully before investing. All investing is subject to risk. Fund shareholders own the funds which own Vanguard. Investments in bond funds are subject to interest rate, credit, and inflation risk. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor. All right, two more quick conversations for you. This first one is with DJ Tierney, Senior Portfolio Strategist at Charles Schwab. And I, I thought I'd bring this entire topic full circle because with all of this talk about looking beyond fees and maybe looking beyond plain vanilla ETFs, I was very interested in hearing from an ETF issuer who offers some of the lowest cost plain vanilla ETFs out there to, to get their view. And so here's DJ's take on all this. You know, we work closely with advisors and you know, we will say that low cost, costs do matter. Right? It, 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 fees you don't pay go to the investor in terms of long-term returns. So we like minimizing fees. And at Schwab, we believe you should be given the choice and have no, no trade-offs. So you can have low fees, but also have uh, a great experience as well. So we've actually created content to help advisors do due diligence. We've got a guide to due diligence for ETFs. And costs are a key consideration, but there's a lot else to consider. What is the provider's commitment to this space? What's their investment in capital markets? How do they approach securities lending? What's the liquidity profile for the ETFs across their whole suite of offers? So there's lots of things that, that we encourage advisors to consider, um, and you know, we've actually got a guide to help them along that process. Well, I mentioned the shifting market environment. How much of a factor do you think that is playing 
and this focus being placed on ETF due diligence. Do you think that is why I'm hearing this come up much more in conversations? Is that the catalyst, or do you think there are other reasons? Yeah, it might be. It might be. You know, signs of the of the industry. Um, you know, maturing. There's certainly lots of choices. Uh, no, no shortage of new ETFs coming online. You know, we've got over a hundred providers in the industry now, and you know, we think choice is great. You know, choice is good for advisors and investors, and, and you know, you've seen some new products from us in the last year. You might see more coming from us. You know, we think if we can give advisors choices and give them a chance to personalize a portfolio to meet the needs of unique needs of each investor, uh, that's positive for the long run. Okay, when I hear personalize a portfolio, I automatically start thinking direct indexing. Mm. And of course, Schwab has rolled out a direct indexing offering. I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that and maybe where that fits into this. Yeah, we're, we're really excited. We did launch the Schwab personalized indexing um, approach in April, mid-April of this year. Um, after uh, a lot of work in-house in to develop it. Um, for us, it's perfectly consistent with what Schwab's been doing for the last 30 or 40 years. You know, it's democratizing access to an approach that's been around for decades. Um, and, 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 you know, back to ETFs, ETFs have done such a wonderful job of bringing costs down and giving access to all sorts of asset classes, but they can only go so far in terms of tax efficiency. And um, we look at the direct indexing space and we really appreciate um, the, the, the next step of tax efficiency, lowering taxes, uh, uh, capital gains taxes in an overall portfolio approach. So we're excited to bring it um, you know, with, with lower account minimums than other providers and no surprise, low competitive fees. Um, we're really excited to help advisors understand the benefits of Schwab personalized indexing. So I thought that was very interesting. You heard DJ mention that Schwab might be bringing more products to market. And then, of course, we got into the uh, direct indexing discussion, which that adds a, a whole nother dimension to the due diligence process. But to me, especially with his comments on maybe launching some new ETFs, I think that shows there may be a shift here. When you have an issuer like Schwab looking at the market environment and saying, hey, maybe we should bring new solutions to investors because Schwab has historically been pretty conservative with new launches. So I, I thought that was noteworthy. All right. Lastly here, I sat down with Chris Sullivan, president of McMillan Sullivan Communications. They're a PR firm. Uh, they have a number of clients in the ETF space. And again, I, I was really just meeting with Chris to talk shop, but then he made an interesting point and I felt like I had to capture it for the podcast. One of the topics that I am tracking through this conference that's been clear as day to me is a greater emphasis on ETF due diligence. And the way that I would explain this is because we've had a shifting market environment where maybe being plain vanilla, low cost beta isn't necessarily the best place to be in a portfolio. It doesn't mean it's not going to work going forward, but I think it's raised some eyebrows and has advisors looking at alternative exposures, different exposures in their portfolios. Um, that's brought this topic of ETF due diligence to the forefront because getting into some of those products requires a lot more due diligence. You have to understand what you own and what, what exposure you're actually getting. And I'm really curious from your perspective, from a PR and marketing perspective, have you seen anything change here? Does it surprise you that this topic of ETF due diligence has come to the forefront? No, not at all. We've actually been seeing something very similar when it comes to the PR and media side of things. You know, in, in years past, if you were, let's say, a new issuer or bringing out a more esoteric or, you know, strategy that might have just been available to institutions in the past, on the media side, that could have been a tough sell. You know, there was uh, a real, 
I wouldn't say hesitancy, but there was a lot of extra work involved in getting media attention for something like that. But I think with the way the markets have been lately, and not just this year, but the last couple of years, there is much more openness on the media side to hearing about things that are new, things that haven't been done before. And you don't necessarily have to justify, well, why are you doing it if it's never been done before? You can get right to the point of what you're doing that's different, what it can mean for an investor, and how it's going to fit in this kind of climate that we're in, where volatility is front of mind for everyone, looking for uncorrelated returns is front of mind for everyone, looking for new sources of yield is front of mind for everyone. And so there is a real, uh, I would say, appetite for learning about more of these strategies where there wasn't as strong an appetite before. So it's been clear to you on the media side, just a lot more interest around hearing these compelling stories. I know that you work with a lot of upstart ETF issuers who have unique products coming to market. From your perspective, it's been clear as day, the, the additional interest here. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, not just interest around the launch, but interest on an ongoing basis. You know, Seeing how these new ideas are shaking out, seeing if they are proving that their thesis is actually going to work, and a lot of them have been. And I think that really just interest begets more interest, and I think we're going to see a lot more you know, new upstarts, like you were saying, come to market as this year moves along. They're going to be bringing some really new and compelling ideas that are going to be getting some attention. I thought that was the perfect clip to close here. Chris said, interest begets interest. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing now. I think it's why ETF due diligence was such a big topic at Inside ETFs. I think it's why we're going to continue to see more unique ETF strategies coming to market, which, of course, leads to the need for greater ETF due diligence. And around and around we go. Uh, In any event, I'll leave it there for this week. Really hope you enjoyed these conversations. I want to thank our sponsor, Goldman Sachs Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Goldman Sachs Asset Management's ETFs, you can visit gsam.com slash ETFs. Next week, I'll be joined by Wendy Wong, head of sustainable investment partnerships at New York Life Investments. She's going to walk through their uh, dual impact suite of ETFs. And then Sonia Fermato, senior director at Foresight, is going to offer a behind-the-scenes look at mutual fund ETF conversions and semi-transparent ETFs. Really look forward to that. Until then, have a great week, everyone. <laughs>